Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Mali is facing its biggest political crisis since the return to civilian rule in 2013. What are the political and security implications? And the Central African Republic is gearing up for presidential elections in December. Is the country ready? Plus, we discuss France's relations with Sub-Saharan Africa. How has it evolved under President Macron and where does the United States fit in? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Since early June, there have been massive protests against Malian President Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita, also known as Ibaka. I think that people coming out today, the youth, the women, young and old, shows that Mali's fed up. We want to change the system. We want this regime to leave. We want a new social contract to set up a Mali that stands up. How will this standoff end and what does it mean for Mali and the Sahel region? Joining me to discuss Mali and other issues is Rahman Idrissa, a senior researcher at the African Studies Center in Leiden, Jeff Hawkins, a former U.S. ambassador to the Central African Republic, and Marielle Harris, a program manager at the CSIS African Program. Okay, since June, we have seen a coalition of opposition, civil society, religious leaders overrun the streets of Bamako and other cities, and they've demanded a number of reforms, including, most prominently, the resignation of Ibaka. As of the recording today, the 27th of July, none of the government's concessions have really satisfied the demonstrators, and ECOWAS, the regional body, has sent five presidents from the region to try to get some sort of a resolution, but they've largely struggled to broker an agreement. Rahman, can you talk us through what is driving these protests, and how do you see this ending? Well, it's, it's a disappointment, really. You know, Mali has been married in crisis since 2011-2012 with invasion of jihadists to the north, and saved by the French uh, intervention, but then you have a civil war basically breaking out in the center of the country with, with massacres and, and, and the collapse of the economy. So Malians elected, they voted Ibrahim Keita twice into the presidency, and he, his mission really was to end that crisis, to find a, a way out of the crisis that would satisfy. Instead of doing that, the president has basically engaged in massive corruption. The first thing that he did when he came to power was to buy a presidential plane in a state that is undergoing a fiscal crisis and, and war in the country. And we have learned recently that his son is basically at the head of a graph system that is using the state apparatus to, to operate. So Malians are just tired of him. They voted him twice because they saw him as someone who would bring the solution to the crisis. And they see that he's actually worsening the crisis. He also knows that he has been elected democratically, so he doesn't want to go because of that. But because of the special circumstances of, of Mali, the people in Mali feel that he's the legal president of Mali that does not justify that he, he should stay because he is now really a liability for the country. And given those you know, two logics, I don't see how this could end in a, in a kind of a reasonable, sensible manner because everyone feels that they are right. Yeah, and you know, Ibaka has provided a number of what I would call superficial concessions, everything from 
you know, forming a new government or saying that he will put candidates who lost in the legislative election to the Senate or maybe rerun, but that's not sufficient. And the protest movement has been really resilient and focused so squarely on this issue around his resignation. Um, It seems like it's going to either have to get worse to get to a conclusion or the region has to really pick off a number of these key leaders and get some sort of compromises. Otherwise, yeah, I think we're, we're really stuck. And I know that most observers often think about the insecurity, but I'm so glad, Rahman, that you mentioned the corruption because that's, I think, much more resonant, particularly for Southern Malians, than necessarily the security challenges, although that is part of the dialogue too. And we at CSIS have had a number of conversations around what's happening in the Sahel, what's happening in Mali, and especially around what we think is the challenges of the peace process, both the lack of political will on part of many of the combatants, including the government, and the limitation of the Algiers Accord, which is really the foundational document to solve Mali's problems. And Marielle, you and I wrote this piece in April about these shortcomings and why the Malian government, the regional partners, the international partners should think about reimagining the peace process. Can you share with uh, the audience how we thought about this issue and what our recommendations were? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that the overall message here is that Mali's 2015 Algiers Accord has not and cannot solve the unrest and the insecurity. I mean, Mali finds itself in more complex and dangerous security condition than five years ago when the accord was signed. And I think we kind of focused on three reasons why it hasn't you know, why it's failed. And I think the first is that it's failed to engage critical stakeholders. So it really only focuses on the Tuareg-led rebellion in 2011. And to that end, it only focuses on the Malian government and the CMA and the platform movements, which were the Tuareg-led movements in the north. And it fails to engage Islamists and civil society and women and youth. And then I think the second reason is that the accord has a severe lack of geographical scope. The third reason that we identified was that there's a dangerous lack of stakeholder buy-in to support even the useful parts of the accord, right? So I think it's worth noting that the accord was signed under considerable pressure from Algeria and the international community. And still today, the Malian government has kind of failed to set up an effective monitoring committee for implementing the accord and the government's lagging in constitutional reform. And it's not only the Malian government. I mean, it's the signatory movements, right? The northern armed signatory movements that are that are showing a lack of commitment. And then also Algeria, which is the political guarantor of the accord, has undergone leadership changes, which make it basically less able to serve in this role. And the whole issue with this is that the UN and donor funded reports and, you know, international observers continue to call on the Algiers Accord as kind of the preeminent way forward. We came up with a few recommendations of what could be done. I think first we need to retain the essential elements of the accord, right? So this includes disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, also known as DDR, which focuses on ex-combatants, and also decentralization of the Malian government. And then I think we need to integrate parallel peace processes 
which have been taking place kind of on the sides of the agreement, which include ceasefires between the CMA and the platform and also negotiations between the Malian government and al-Qaeda-linked groups like JNIM, and then also replacing Algeria as guarantor, right? I mean, let's look to ECOWAS as an option, African Union, United Nations, maybe the G5. The U.S. Treasury and the United Nations Security Council should continue to sanction individuals, but they need to pay equal attention on Malian officials as they do on members of extremist groups and signatory movements. I just want to end with the main message being that there kind of needs to be a total reimagining of the Malian peace process because right now it's incomplete and stakeholders are failing to implement even the few valuable parts of the deal. Rahman, we're so lucky to have you on the podcast. You've got so much expertise in this area. Anything that you'd want to tweak about what Marielle said and we wrote? Are there things that we should amplify or maybe consider uh, adjusting as you hear her walk through the key points? Well, no, I, I think I only agree with, with this. It is, it's very smart view on the, on the problems in Mali. One thing that needs maybe to be considered, though, is to look at the transborder dynamics of, of those conflicts. So countries like Burkina Faso and Niger should be closely associated with how, you know, solutions in Mali are being implemented, simply because uh, the conflicts actually have crossed into those other countries. Um, and and the Algeria remains an important actor, uh, not just as a guarantor, but simply because, you know, the, especially the jihadists, many of them are Algerians, they have bases in Algeria, so there is no possible solution without some kind of involvement of Algeria. Uh, I don't know how this could proceed in the case of Algeria, in the case of Niger and Burkina Faso, it's probably easier because we already have this framework of the G5 Sahel, but those neighboring countries of Mali need also to be involved in, in the search for a solution. I think that's a really important addition. And at CSIS, we're hoping to do some more work on the Sahel, Mali-specific, but also, as you said, Rahman, bringing in the dynamics uh, in Niger and Burkina and the broader region. So thank you so much for that. Let's turn to Central African Republic now. And the last time we talked about CAR CAR, uh, was in November. And of course, given we're based in Washington, a lot of that was about Russia. But I'm really happy today not to do the great power competition story and really focus on the peace process, the upcoming elections. And and we'll try to sneak in some COVID-19 updates as well. Ambassador Hawkins, we're Thrilled that you're here. You served as our ambassador to Bangui from 2015 to 2017. And I'd love your take on the peace process, which seems still pretty tentative and tenuous. While some handed their weapons following the peace deal, many armed groups have not. Nearly three years later, some demobilized fighters say their expectations have not been met. But the government says it's doing everything it can to address those concerns. There's still conflict in the country. Many of the or some of the signatories have pulled out, including the 3R movement by Siddiqui Abbas. So I'd love to hear what your current assessment is. I mean, I was always a bit critical of the agreement for a couple of reasons, which we can get into. But I think it's important, no matter what's written on the paper, I think it's important to think of that agreement more as a truce 
that could eventually lead to a peace rather than a peace itself. And, and events since the signing of the agreement have really borne that out. And the, and the latest conflict with 3R is, is the most recent example of that. And, and, and I suspect that there will be more conflict, particularly as we move into an electoral period when the leverage of the armed groups will be, will be that much greater. And I think it's important for your listeners to really understand that when we're talking about these armed groups, we're not talking about, you know, regional groupings or, you know, national movements or people with an ideology. Most of these groups are, are essentially nothing more than sort of semi-organized bands of thugs that, that control, you know, cattle transhumance routes or gold mines or diamond mines. Uh, and, and that's pretty much it. And so we're not going to get an agreement that meets their their political aspirations because they don't really have any. What they want to do is, uh, you know, make money and control territory. And the other thing that's really important to keep in mind about the peace agreement is that although the agreement's a year old, these groups have not substantially disarmed. They still pretty much control the same territories they controlled when the agreement is signed. And without some serious leverage from the international community and the Central African government, we're not going to see peace. And so the key to this, the, the whole process, is really about putting real pressure on these guys. And that may be military pressure. It may be pressure from regional uh, actors who are influential with the armed groups, Chad or Sudan or whatever. It may be some carrots as well, but you can't you, you can't win the peace with carrots alone. You're going to need a little stick. And that's been hard to mobilize thus far. Yeah. And I wonder if it's going to get harder, right? So we've got the election coming up. As you mentioned, that means that there's going to be new incentives for disruption or for, or for bargaining using military. There's a lot of questions about who's even running. President Twadera tried to delay the election because of COVID-19. The court rejected it. Former President Bozize is running. Former interim president Catherine Sambapaza is running. And the things that you're talking about, Jeff, in terms of the role of the international community, well, it's we're in this place right now where it's not like the U.S. seems to be prioritizing CAR. I mean, France has had an enduring interest in that region, but I mean, everyone's focused on COVID. What's realistic here that we can bring to bear so that situation doesn't get worse? Well, I mean, as we talk about these elections, and I feel a certain sense of deja vu because I was there for the the 2015-16 elections, and so many of the issues seem very similar to the ones that we were dealing with then, including some of the, the personalities. There's three things that we need to to worry about. I mean, the first is logistics. And I, I do not underestimate that one because, you know, when you're in France, you say car is a country the size of France and Belgium put together. When you're in America, you say it's the size of Texas. But in any event, it's a big country with no infrastructure to speak of. Getting polling places set up, getting, you know, people registered to vote is an incredibly difficult job. Most places in the country, there really isn't even any government to speak of. And so much of the burden falls on MINUSCO, which is, you know, has a presence around the country, but isn't everywhere. And, and it's a big job. So, th- so there's that. There's security, and that's always been the big one, right? These armed groups are going to want to get something for not disrupting the election, so we'll have to see how that goes. And then finally, there's the political part of this. And normally that would have been, for me, even though an important issue, maybe the least important of the three. But with Bozize now in play, that becomes very different. And this is, this is a bad guy. You know, he's under UN sanction. He's under U.S. sanction. He tried to stage a coup against Kalingba. He did stage, you know, ultimately did overthrow Patase. This is somebody that is an incredibly disruptive political actor. And you can be 
rest assured that he will pull out all the stops to destabilize this electoral process if he doesn't think it's going to go his way. Um, so that's something that needs to be controlled as well. So there's a lot, lot of play here. Yeah, I, I agree, Jeff. And I just hope that folks, you know, who, who think primarily about great power competition in Africa, and so in the case of Carr, think about Russia, realize that we've got it backwards, right? That we got to focus on you know, the stability and addressing some of these conflicts rather than thinking about, you know, in the first instance, at least, whether Russia is exploitive or not. So I hope people will listen and take some of your uh, really thoughtful uh, recommendations and insights to heart. So let's move on to our, like, final conversation. And we're doing a whole series on Africa's foreign relations for the next couple of podcasts. We started with our great power debate last episode, and we'll do France today, and then we'll move on to the U.S. and China and a couple of other countries. So we're really lucky to have a bunch of people who really think about this issue a lot, have either experienced or studied it. And Rahman, I'd like to start with you because the phrase France-Afrique is one that is littered all over the Africa, you know, story, history, politics, but I'm not sure people know what that means. And if you could just give us a little background on what France Afrique means, and then if you have a sense it's changed under President Macron. Yeah, France Afrique, yeah, sure. Uh, it's a bit of a political word, actually, but it basically describes a system of control and, and collusion that, that was put in place by by the French, specifically Charles de Gaulle in 1958, when he came to power, with his mission being to restore France to great power status. And in his head, to do that, France needed to, you know, retain some control over its sub-Saharan African colonies after they became independent. Uh, I, I should, of course, uh, specify here that France-Afrique really is about sub-Saharan Africa, French-speaking countries not, for instance, about Morocco or Algeria or Tunisia, which were also French colonies. In the late 1950s, uh, African colonies of French were gradually moving towards independence uh, in, a, in a way very similar to actually what, the, what was happening in British Africa. And without this intervention of Charles de Gaulle, uh, the kind of relationships that Anglophone Africa has with, with Britain would be very similar to what would have happened, in fact, in, 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 the, in the Francophone area. So what was this system of control? It, it, it had a kind of formal side. France uh, signed a number of treatises of economic cooperation, but a very specific kind of economic cooperation. Actually, they put in place a whole ministry. The Ministry of Cooperation was only dealing with the, those, those countries in sub-Saharan Africa, former French colonies, whereas the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would deal with other countries. So there was this very specific kind of cooperation, which basically aimed at ensuring that those countries remain dependent on, on France, economically speaking. The financial regime of the France CFA currency was part of that. And then there were like security treatises to which France sought to guarantee the, the, the security of the, of the countries against outside aggressors, but also against instability from within the countries. And then there is this kind of informal side, which are the networks that were put in place by the head of Charles de Gaulle's Africa cell at Elysee Palace, Jacques Foucault, who basically uh, developed those, those, those networks to stimulate uh, personal ties at a personal level between African heads of state and, and the French political class. So this is something that happened in the, in the 1960s. Of course, the conditions since then have changed uh, dramatically. And so the France-Afrique that was uh, put in place by Charles de Gaulle is very different from what we have now. 
But what did not change is the reasons for which France put this in place, you know, to kind of have Africa as, well, Francophone Africa as a power base for its influence, its international influence. It is in its area of responsibility, but also, of course, those African countries support France in the international arena at, at United Nations and so on and so forth. African leaders, many of them had interests in this because it allowed them to have an extra protection for, for the regime. So they had an initiative in, in, the, in the development of this system. Now, I should say that I started this by saying that it is a bit polemical because you actually have things like that elsewhere. The France-Africa system is really a kind of international patron client kind of system that, that exists in the case of some countries like France and, and its former colonies in Africa and the United States and some countries in the global south. The, the problem with, with it is that it is a system. I think that is the, the important word here, meaning that it is entrenched and it's very difficult to, to change it because there are so many interests that have built towards the decades uh, in the, in, around it. And since the, ter- term, the final term of Jacques Chirac, every French president that has come to power uh, in, uh, in Paris has proclaimed that he is going to end uh, France-Afrique. Nicolas Sarkozy said it, uh, François Hollande said it, Macron, of course, said it, and it has never uh, gone away. And I don't see it going away unless the French uh, Fifth Republic itself kind of changes. Now, that's really interesting. Both, I think, you're right to make comparisons between other countries, whether it's the U.S. or elsewhere, and having relationships, similar patron-client relationships. But, you know, this idea that it's embedded in the Fifth Republic is really worth thinking about. I mean, you're right, Macron just like Hollande, just like Sarkozy, has has tried to say this no longer exists. And, I mean, he's done a number of things symbolically to show that, right? I mean, particularly around the CFA, which is the currency in West Africa and in Central Africa, but the, the West African currency is no longer as connected to the euro or the franc as it was. And And certainly Macron has tried to bring the Sahelian leaders together and get them to have more ownership over some of the efforts that France is doing militarily in the region, Operation Barkhane. And a lot of that comes from anti-French sentiment. So it, it does seem that there is efforts on the margins to try to address both the perception of France Afrique and perhaps maybe even the, the substantive elements of it. But I guess it would be useful to hear Ambassador Hawkins' thoughts, because you're you live in Paris, and you know you, I assume, have some sense of how the French public think about about this relationship, both sort of the as Rahman said, this you know polemic term of France Afrique, but also its connections to a, a broader system. Yeah, it is such a schizophrenic relationship in some ways. And psychological elements are are so important in this. I think in a lot of respects, at least for France's ruling class, its position in Africa is what makes it a great power, right? And, And if you look at France, its security posture... On the continent, you know, they've got, they've got the 5,000 plus troops doing Barkhane, but they also have several thousand troops elsewhere in, you know, in permanent bases around the continent in places like Gabon and, and Djibouti. There are a few countries that can say the same thing. The United States is one and China is another, but that's a big part of their identity and their ability to influence things politically on the continent is very important to them. For the French people, you know, I think a lot of the issues are, 
around Africa come down to humanitarian ones. Immigration obviously is is crucial, and and there's obviously a large African diaspora in France that has a, has a significant impact here. And so uh, I think to the extent that the average French person thinks about France Afrique, they think of it more in those terms. There continues to be a, a strong economic relationship between France and Africa. France is remains one of the top investors on the continent. Although it's interesting, if you look at the investments, there's the places you might expect like Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire, but a lot of it's Angola and Nigeria. And what that means is total and oil and less some of the, the more traditional relationships, economic relationships that France has had. But that economic aspect is besides those primary materials is really starting to fall by the wayside, too. I was pretty surprised. I discovered recently that French exports to Africa are only two Less than less than three percent of of France's total exports. Wow, that's that's so like not, U.S. level. Yeah, it's it's not a, it's no longer a big wow. export market for France, and so ultimately, what it comes down to is there are threats that emanate from Africa, whether it's you know uncontrolled immigration or terrorism, or whatever. There is political influence. There's the this this sense of self, and then there is there's the continuing economic relationship, all of which sort of ties France to Africa in weird ways. And I, I saw this as an ambassador. You know, the French, uh, when I were there, I think largely trying to do many of the same things we were trying to do, stabilize a bad situation. They were trying to get an electoral process going. But there was also this certain compulsion that we as Americans, at least in Central Africa, just didn't have, which was to sort of keep their hands in and 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 have this behind the scenes control that really uh is not part of our makeup on the continent really at all anymore you're right it's an identity thing it's a psychological thing it does not have to do with the french nation itself it's really the french state i think that the presidency this france africa is run from the elysee palace it is not being monitored by by the national assembly the decisions are being taken by the president. So, and, and that's where it was born. It was born as a cell in the Elysee Palace between Charles de Gaulle and Jacques Foucault. And since then, it has not changed. That kind of system has not changed. And, and because you don't have this kind of outside control over it from the parliament, which also has to do with the uniqueness of the French, uh, of course, uh, Fifth Republic system, which is not a parliamentary regime like in Britain or in Germany or elsewhere. So this system has taken a life of its own, actually. But I think it is also, uh, it, it's, it's taken it a long time to die and it's not dead yet. But uh, one of the interesting little factoids that, that I came up with recently, Jacques Foucault, the, the person you're talking about, Monsieur Afrique in the Elysee, had 60 people working in the Elysee within the presidency on Africa for him. The current, his... His successor, several generations removed, the current guy has, has four people working for him. Um, yeah, no, there is no longer cell. There is no longer a, a real Africa cell at Elysee. I've been to that office, by the way, though. It is, it, you can, the legacy of Ocard, uh, is a, it's interesting because that's a beautiful office. And, it is you a know, very even nice though it's office. <laughs> understaffed, right? It's fascinating. It tells you the power that Focard used to have. No, no offense, Judd, but it's much nicer than your office at the White House ever was. <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> well, Rahman, let me, let me go back to the points that you make because they're, they're really important. And if it's, if, if the system, if it's part embedded in the, the Fifth Republic system, and, you know, I don't know how one changes the Fifth Republic system, nor am I advocating for that. But, I mean, I, there is a role for Africans here, right? African leaders to change this relationship. And, and maybe what are the types of reforms 
or or statements or postures you think would be helpful to right size the relationship? I think I think the, the problem is actually is also coming from the Africans, of course, because especially those who do not want to be like let's say democratic, and then the France African system helps them to avoid democratic accountability because they they would just kind of quote the French polit- political system to support what, whatever they're doing. And, and, the, and the French, unfortunately, are happy to oblige. And I'm sorry to say that this is something that I even see in the case of Niger, which was on a good way to being more democratic, but because of the support of the French, is sometimes really veering out of the way. So the, if, you, if you have more democratic regimes in, in, in Africa, that would precipitate the death of the France Africa, that's for sure. And not all African heads of state actually, you know, kind of had this allegiance towards France. Of course, there is a famous uh, case of Thomas Sankara in the 1980s. In, in the case of Niger, you have the difference between the, the first president, Jory, and the second one who actually ejected the French military base from, from Niger. One thing that made the France, France-Africa system so enduring is probably the longevity of Félix Houphouët-Boigny at the head of Côte d'Ivoire who was really the kind of African pillar of, of France-Afrique. By the way, the phrase France-Afrique was coined by, by Félix Houphouët-Boigny in the 1950s, he, but he coined it for, for you know, a kind of a positive mindset. That's really interesting. And, and Senghor too, right? Akhman, would, would you put him in the same category? Yes, but more, more Félix Houphouët-Boigny. Mm. Can I just interject here too? And, and let's, let's not only blame African heads of state, because I think a lot of African opposition figures play the same game with France. And, and, you know, Central African Republic is sort of an extreme uh, version of this because it, you know, economically and, and, and otherwise it just doesn't have the diversity that places like, you know, Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire have. But I mean, all those opposition figures were interested. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether it was reciprocated or not, but were interested in playing footsie with the French and getting the support. And they always figured that, you know, if, oh, uh, if I trot over to the French embassy and I get the, the blessing of the French ambassador, I'm good to go. I'm the next president of the republic. Um, and that whole dynamic on both sides, on the French side and on the, on the African side, to my mind, is really unhealthy and, and not very democratic. Jeff, can I, can I draw you out on sort of how does the U.S. fit into this relationship a little bit? What is the dynamic? You said there's a difference in the DNA in which how the U.S. operates maybe versus the French. And the relationship in my mind often is it's cordial but not close sometimes. It's adversarial, if not said that explicitly. Like, how have you seen it evolve and, and where do you think it's going? I think my sense, and this is anecdotal, but my sense is it's perceived much more as adversarial on the French side than it is on the American side. I think there's actually quite a lot of congruence uh, of interests, uh, particularly as far as concerns security. And and that's uh, one place, and we don't talk about it much in the States, and we don't talk about it much in France, but the security cooperation in Africa between AFRICOM and, and, and French forces on the continent is, is pretty significant. And even something like Sangaris in, in Central African Republic, the French operation, military operation there, they would have had a really hard time doing it without, you know, American airlift and all the rest. And, you know, little things like there was actually even a cell of two or three American soldiers that were there at the airport. Nobody talked about it, just there to, to do uh, logistics for the French army uh, in, in Central African Republic. Well, this is why the defense minister came to Washington, because the proposed mm-hmm. drawdown in the Sahel is, is right. devastating for the French. I mean, we could talk about what it means for the counterterrorism operations writ large, but for the French particularly, the 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 refuel, the logistics, the yes. information sharing, like 
there's they're deeply concerned that they may lose that if these plans go through. I haven't heard what the latest thinking from the Pentagon is, but you know the U.S. whatever the term is, forward operating base or whatever in Agadez in Niger, I think that the French Sea is particularly important in the drones that are based there. And if all that goes away, uh, that that leaves them exposed. Rama, maybe I'll give you, we, we just mentioned Niger, so maybe I'll give you the last word. Uh, thoughts about uh, how African states can navigate, you know, the U.S. and France, or maybe just some broader conclusions about this relationship and how we should think about it. Yeah, well, I think that for, for, for the states in Africa, especially heads of state or people in, in government, uh, maybe I'm, I'm thinking as a Sahelian now, there is an acute sense of the fragility of the of the situation. You know, th- those are still actually fledgling states. The economies are very small. As Ambassador Hawkins mentioned, uh, for instance, the economic relations between Africa and Francophone Africa and France are not that significant, actually, despite all that noise around it. So uh, these they feel uh, very isolated, small, and fragile, and I think that puts them in a, in a vulnerable position in their relation with countries like France or the U.S. And one thing that has to change is maybe those uh, leaders becoming much more accountable on their own uh, populations, becoming much much more aware of the fact that you know, kind of working for the development of their economies would bring them more legitimacy than just uh, trying to find some kind of outside protection. But how does that happen? I think one way in which the difference between uh, France and the US can help, and the kind of hope that I often saw uh, people in Francophone countries uh, uh, lodge within America specifically, is that there was this idea, this notion that America was much more supportive of the concept of of democracy than, than France. And that, you know, a development of this concept is something that is going kind of to help change the situation. But at the same time, the U.S. is not really very interested in Africa, especially not in Francophone Africa. So the situation remains difficult in that sense. It's not a very positive note to end on, but that's the reality. Listen, we've just got to say it like it is and and hopefully kind of think through next steps based on a clear-eyed assessment of of the dynamics. So let me thank all of our guests and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.